My friends, no story ever written for the screen is as dramatic as the story of the screen itself. When I sit down to watch a movie for the pleasure of watching a movie, I do not usually pick a movie from before the mid-1910s at the earliest to watch. And that's not because those movies are bad, that is just because the sensation I crave when I'm watching a movie is usually to get lost in the picture. To have the cinematic language and grammar carry me into a whole nother world where I can see the world differently and laugh and cry and really get sucked into it. And even with the best of the earliest masters, that doesn't really happen. When I'm watching a film by Georges Méliès, I never forget that I'm watching an old movie. And that movie might be hard to understand. If it's not a vaudeville performance, there may have even been someone who was supposed to be in the theater describing what was happening to you so it would be easy enough for you to follow. And I'm not saying these movies aren't good. They are good. They were just not made for the same reasons that movies were made a little bit later in cinema's history until now. I hope to talk a lot about that cinema spectacle in the beginning of episode 11. And I do watch movies from before the mid-1910s, pretty regularly actually. I just mostly watch them with a certain level of academic detachment, and I watch them so that I could better understand the origin and creation of movies and their relationship to history when I write and produce this show. Anyway, I give you that long, kind of boring confession for this reason. So you can understand what I mean when I tell you that I could watch Max Linder's work from 1906 to 1910, not even counting the work he continued to make in the 20s, for three hours at a time. It's that good. Max Linder was a comedic filmmaker. Very quickly after beginning his work in film, he started writing and directing and starring in his own pieces. At the beginning, his movies were produced and distributed by Pathé. And before we go on, I wanted to just describe a couple of his movies for you so that you could understand how funny they are. In his 1909 film, Max falls in love with the bearded woman. The plot goes like this. After playfully begging for some money, Max goes to the circus to spend it irresponsibly where he is immediately enamored with the bearded woman. Without thinking much about it, he signs up for the circus. Next we see a cut and Max is practicing for his new act. The circus performers have dressed him in a bear costume where he used to dance around like an idiot, and he does so successfully and it's very, very funny. While he is dancing around like an idiot, he accidentally tears what turns out to be the fake beard off the bearded woman. Shocked by this revelation, he tears off immediately, and the bearded woman follows after him along with the circus ringleader. Unfortunately for Max, he's still dressed like a bear, and as he rips through the city streets, he comes along a couple of animal catchers who begin to chase him without second thought. Finally, this uproarious chase gathers the attention of the police, and so Max is chased all the way back home by dog catchers, the police, and circus performers, before his parents throw them all out, and Max remains to live another idle day in freedom. Another movie, this time from 1906, called Max Takes a Bath, is a little bit simpler, but just as impressive in its visual comedy. In a very clear and easy-to-follow sequence of events, 
Max goes to the doctor because he has some sort of nervous spasms in his shoulders. The doctor prescribes cold baths as a treatment, so Max goes to purchase a tub, which I guess he didn't have access to any other way. The tub is far too heavy, and he struggles to carry it home on his back like a turtle. Once Max gets the tub right up the stairs to his apartment, he finds that he cannot fill the tub up using the faucet, which is located outside his room. So after Max brings the tub outside to the hall, he fills it up and takes a bath. Much to the excitement of a dirty tenant who shares the apartment building, much to the dismay of the very proper lady who he tries to avoid by dipping himself completely in the water so she won't see him, and causing much anger for the landlord, who calls the police to have Max removed. But not before he splashes everyone as much as he can. The police take Max down to the station, in his tub, water and all, where he continues to cause havoc and splashes them. Max ends up fleeing the police, looking like a turtle in his tub, which he's crawling under to cover his nakedness. And Max Linder does all this with such joie de vivre. It's amazing! Aside from just being hilarious, you can also see his impact, particularly on the American filmmaker Charlie Chaplin, who borrowed some of his mannerisms for his famous Tramp character. Take, for example, the funny shuffling walk that Linder has compared to Charlie Chaplin's kind of duck-like walk. Anyway, enough gushing. Let's go back and handle the story a little bit more logically in the traditional history of film fashion so far, where we begin at the beginning and end at the ending of Max Linder's amazing life and career. This man was known to millions as Max Linder. What you're hearing right now is the audio from a movie called The Man in the Silk Hat about Linder from 1983. He was my father, yet I never knew him. The first time we met, he was smiling on the screen, beyond my reach. And I was wondering why he had been so soon forgotten, he and his films. The Man in the Silk Hat was only ever released on VHS, and you can buy a brand new copy of it on Amazon for $80 if for some reason you feel like doing that. It is basically a collection of Max Linder film footage, as his daughter, Maud Linder, narrates the piece as an investigation into who her father was before he eventually committed suicide when she was just a baby. And Maud Linder poses an excellent question. Why was he forgotten so quickly? I mean, I'd never heard of him before doing my research for last episode, had you? The only film textbook I have that I know of him in is in one specifically about French film, and he didn't come up at all in my history of cinema class in college. So now we examine his life, from beginning to end, and see if we can find out what he should be remembered for, and try to reason out why he may have been forgotten. Max Linder was born Gabrielle Louviel in a town just outside of Bordeaux, France, on 16 December 1883. Accounts of Linder's early childhood suggest a happy one, filled with play and exploration, and a healthy dose of skipping school to boot. During his education, Linder developed his love for theatrical performance, and achieved high marks and high acclaim in both tragedy and comedy at the schools which he attended. Later, he would move to Paris and begin his career as an actor, and that's when we would get to know him as he settled down into a partnership with Pathé. 
And this, my friends, is the part of the show you've been waiting for, when Max Linder becomes, well, Max Linder. It's when he takes his name, begins his amazing movie career, and changes cinema forever but nobody remembers him why I don't know. By 1904, Gabriel Levelier, who had dropped his name and become Max Linder, was already a minor star in the world of Parisian stage performance. Luckily for Max, one of his directors was also involved in the burgeoning movie business of one Georges Pathé, and Max began working not just on stage, but in film. And so now things get a bit confusing. History is messy at the best of times, but trying to parse out the actual order of what happened in the career of Max Linder has proven extremely frustrating. Multiple sources cite his first starring role with Pathé as the 1907 film The Unskilled Skater, also sometimes called Max Learns to Skate. I find it likely that the second title was chosen after the fact, as if it was Max Linder's first film, there would be no particularly important reason to have his name in the title like there would be in later films. And here in the record it seems pretty clean. So far, so good. We have Max's first major role, and we know when he got it. Except, if The Unskilled Skater is Max's first starring role, and that happened in 1907, how could Max have made, in 1906, Max Takes a Bath, a movie that I've already described, in which his name is in the title, and the character of Max, the lovable lazy bourgeois screw-up, existed in full form. I do not know. Something must be wrong somewhere, but it's a mystery to me. At any rate, in 1907, or 1906, Max began his journey to film stardom that would carry him across the world, both physically and as an image of light. By 1909, Linder was becoming popular, and was getting tired of working under other directors. Charles Pathé gave him permission to write and direct his own films. Linder accepted, and at this period in his career he began making a movie a day, which is an amazing amount of effort by any standard, and is partially responsible for his incredible output of over 500 films in 20 years. Day in and day out, Linder produced comedic hit after comedic hit and soon became a bankable star for Pathé, someone able to sell movies based on his name being in the title alone. As the name Max Linder became famous enough to sell movies, Pathé gave Linder complete creative control over his films. And with this power, Linder continued to make movies at an incredible pace. I particularly like the way his daughter Maud describes it in her aforementioned 1983 documentary. I later described how he worked in those days. I told my story to the actors. I acted it out. I explained it. We rehearsed it once, and we shot. In 1914, Max Linder created Max and the Lady Doctor, a short comedy about our young man Max who falls in love with a female practitioner of medicine. The punchline of the piece is when Max becomes enraged after he walks in on his wife medically listening to another man's heart, and failing to understand the necessity of this, chases all of the other patients out of the office, and the two have a happy scene at the end. The film is fine enough on its own merits, but what's really exciting about it is how Max credits himself as both the star and the author. This is one of the earliest instances, if not the first instance, of a filmmaker being referred to as the author of a movie. In French, they would use the word... Hold on here. Uter. 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 Which we would anglicize as auteur in English, and it would become the basis of one of the most important frameworks of film theory in the mid-20th century. 
This is, of course, mostly an interesting footnote, as auteur theory didn't have a whole lot to do with Max Linder by the time it came about in France in the 1950s and 60s. Still, it's interesting and super cool to see the term being used so long before the Cahiers du Cinema and the French New Wave, which we will cover in about 30 years. The First World War is truly horrifying for so many reasons. It was this first testing ground where the science and technology that had been used to at once make so many people's lives better and through agents of empire to make so many people's lives worse were specifically turned into weapons to kill human beings on a mass industrial scale. The trauma of coming into this kind of warfare is virtually unimaginable to anyone who has not experienced it. And that includes myself. World War I was not only faced by the soldiers and civilians who lived through it, but is still being dealt with by the entire world, which must reckon with the legacy of World War I every single day, even though it may not feel like it. And it was this nightmare that so many people, filmmakers included, were entered into. Max Linder joined the French military services in World War I and he came out of it with his own scars. According to one article, while serving as a dispatch driver on the front lines, Max was either shot in the lung or inhaled poison gas. The weight of World War I, his experiences and injury, was heavy on Max Linder. And after the war, he would return to making movies, but at a much slower pace. It seems possible that the war never left Max. Remember this story because just as violence is one of the great impactors on all of history for the 20th century, it's one of the great impactors on film history as well. After largely recovering from his physical injuries, Max Linder went to the United States of America in 1916 to continue his acting career. Linder was attracted by an offer from the American studio Essany Film Manufacturing Company, usually just called Essany Studios. Essany was the home of one Charles Chaplin, their biggest star who had just left for greener pastures away from Chicago. One of the problems with making a podcast about film history is how interconnected and contextual everything is, so if you don't know Essany Studios or even Charlie Chaplin, that's fine. You can expect episodes about the major pre-Hollywood studios and about Charlie Chaplin specifically, along with many other important American filmmakers within the next few months. Essany having just lost Chaplin, their biggest audience draw and one of the biggest stars of the silent era, was anxious to find another actor who could feel the comedic niche of Charlie Chaplin. The two were, and even are, frequently compared, and so Max Linder was a natural choice. He came to America and made three films for Essany. I'm going to play you a clip from Maud Linder's The Man in the Silk Hat that briefly describes Linder's work at this time. Max is invited to the United States by SNA Production to bring his Gallic humor to the American screen. This first film, Max Goes to America, tells the tale of his crossing. It is followed by Max Wants a Divorce and Max in a Taxi. A few stills are all that remains of those movies. I play you that clip for two major reasons. One, Maud Linder has a marvelous narrating voice and we should all listen to it. But two, as a note on film historiography, when this movie premiered in 1983, Maud Linder was correct. Those movies had been lost. But here in the year 2021, those movies have largely been found. 
Max in a Taxi, and Max Wants a Divorce are both available for you to watch and enjoy on YouTube. Later on in the documentary, Maude Linder cites a movie called The King of the Circus, which has also been found when it was previously thought to be lost. Film history is sort of an archaeological project, where it involves not just study of found artifacts, but the continual finding of previously lost information. It happens all the time, a shocking amount. And although Max Linder made over 500 films, and we don't have all of them, we have far more than we did in 1983, which has made studying the life, work, and impact of Linder much more possible and enjoyable. So let this be a lesson to us all. We must never give up hope of finding the lost films, except the original cut of The Magnificent Ambersons, which is probably lost forever. Though Max Linder's health and energy at this point in his career and life was significantly lower than earlier pre-war years, he remained in America into the 1920s and made three important American feature films. They were Seven Years Bad Luck from 1921, Be My Wife from 1921, and The Three Musketeers from 1922, the last of those being a parody of The Three Musketeers. These movies aren't very well remembered today, but they had an impact. Seven Years Bad Luck contains a famous scene with a mirror gag that would later be reused by the Marx Brothers to much greater fame in 1933 in their film Duck Soup. And just like virtually every other Max Linder film, they remain remarkably watchable. In addition to being probably the world's earliest movie star, Max Linder is also the first filmmaker I would consider myself personally a fan of not simply a respectful historical appreciator of. Linder's work was essential in laying the foundation for my favorite silent film comedians, and his influence on film can still be seen today. And with that brief aside, we must journey to the end of Linder's career, and unfortunately, his life. Due to exhaustion and sickness, Max Linder returned to Europe, leaving Hollywood before the release of his film The Three Musket Theirs in 1922. Back on his own continent, with success at Hollywood under his belt, and with an incredible amount of creative and financial power, Max opened his own movie theater, which he creatively called the Max Linder, and he continued his work in film. A notable film from this period is Au Secure, translated as Help in English, which is a comedy horror film with strange hallucinogenic underpinnings that mark it as unique in Max Linder's career, as well as The King of the Circus, which we had already mentioned. In 1923, Max Linder married who I will call in an American accent Helen Peters, who was age 17. In 1925, she was age 18 when both she and Max would take their lives. In 1925, Max Linder was in the middle of a movie called Le Chevalier Bacchus when he would return to his hotel room and both he and his wife Helen would be found dead. Their cause of death was suicide and it was assumed that they had participated in some sort of suicide pact. The exact reason for this act remains unknown and unknowable. Max and Helen had one daughter, Maud, whose voice you've heard on this show. The death of Max Linder is tragic and unnecessary. If you or anyone you know have suicidal thoughts and you live in the United States, you can call the National Suicide Prevention Hotline at 800 800- 273-8255 and get help. Similar services are available in many parts of the world. Ultimately, I believe it's Max Linder's early death that is responsible for his lack of representation in film history textbooks. 
When film history began to be crystallized, Buster Keaton and Charlie Chaplin were alive. We had living access to the great silent clowns who were able to answer questions and comment about their career. And even if they didn't answer questions about their career, their mere continued existence raised the perceived perception of their relative importance to film history. Max Linder didn't have that benefit, and so remains largely forgotten. But he doesn't have to be. You can watch his movies, and I encourage you to do so. You can observe the early origins of silent comedy and see the gags that continue to influence film to this day, albeit the descendants of the descendants of the descendants of those gags. But I guess the most exciting thing about Max Linder for me is it provides an excellent example of why someone should be interested in film history. Max Linder's work isn't listed in 1001 Movies to See Before You Die, It's not typically on a list of the most important early films ever made, but his work is definitely on the list of my favorite early films. By studying film history, we get to watch really good movies that the rest of the world has largely forgotten. And that's a great pleasure. Thank you for listening to this episode of the History of Film. I really should have learned my lesson and stopped making predictions about what time I'm going to get to what subjects and what episodes, because even things that I plan to be little like this one get out of hand, and then they become full episodes instead of little bonus episodes like I expected. That said, I haven't learned my lesson, so here's my plan for the next two episodes. Next episode, we'll cover the life and work of Leon Gamon and Alice Guy Blachet, Then the episode after that, we will go back over to the United States where we will study the work of Edwin S. Porter and the development of the early American studio system on the east coast of the United States. It'll be lots of fun as we go to cover what the earlier film historians might have called primitive cinema's end and the beginning of modern cinema, even though it will be silent for some time still. If you'd like to email me, you can do so at historyoffilmpodcast at gmail.com and visit the show's website, historyoffilmpodcast.com, which I should have fully updated with the last two episodes, tomorrow, January 20th, 2021. If you'd like to support the show, I'd really appreciate it. The best way to do that is to leave a review wherever you listen, and just to tell your friends about it. Join me next week for another exciting episode of the History of Film. <laughs>